Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you all here at Redeemer Church. Let me read for you from the Word of God. From Romans chapter 13, read verses 11 through 14. These are the words of God. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and in envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we come now to the preaching of your word. Would you cut us open by means of your word and spirit, Lord? Would you fix and rearrange our hearts so that we might love you and serve you more? We ask that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive your word for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was talking with Pastor Mike a week or so ago, I asked him what if he had any suggestions for me to preach what passage to preach from, and he said Romans 13. And I figured, given the state of the situation, he was probably referring more to the earlier part of the ver- or, uh, earlier part of the chapter. But as I looked at it, I thought, no, I'm going to preach at the, on the end of the chapter. This is, what, this is what we need to hear, actually. So it's still Romans 13, but I'm going to focus on the end of the chapter here. What do you make of someone who is sleeping during the day? This is what Paul's talking about in this passage, right? He says, It is high time to wake out of our sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, and the day is at hand. Paul's saying it's daytime, Christian. Are you sleeping? What do you make of somebody who sleeps in the middle of the day? Under normal circumstances, it is unnatural and or it's indecent. It's either unnatural and or it's indecent to be asleep when it's daytime under normal circumstances. If you're a nurse working at night shift, you know, we understand. Someone who does not get up in the morning is either lazy or sick. There's something wrong with them in either case. When it's daytime, you get up. You sleep when it's night. Interestingly, also when when we were reading from Romans chapter 6 just a little bit ago, Paul talks about how you are no longer dead in your sins, but you are alive in Christ. Well, sleep is often a picture of death. Someone who sleeps in the middle of the day is acting like a dead person. You're acting like you're dead. So what is is Paul getting at here? Well, that's what we're going to look at shortly. But before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of textual context here. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. We're going to walk through really briefly all of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13 of Romans. And I'm I'm serious when I say it's going to be brief. We'll go through this quickly. But just to give you a little bit of context here, because I think this is helpful, here's why. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. 
Okay, Paul says to you Christians, to the Roman Christians he's talking to, or he's writing to, and to you by extension, he says, present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Well, how in the world can we, even though we're Christians, we know we're Christians, but we're guilty sinners all the same. How in the world can we present ourselves to God as living sacrifices? Well, it's only if we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's only if we have put on Christ, we've been clothed in him, we've been baptized into him, we've been made alive in him, that God views us as holy and acceptable. If you are in Christ, he does see you as holy and acceptable. But it is only through the blood and righteousness of Jesus. Okay, so why is that important for our text here? Well, here's why. If you look at the very last verse that we read, the end of chapter 13, This is what Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So at the beginning of chapter 12, present yourselves as living sacrifices. Well, how in the world can I do that? Paul tells you at the end of chapter 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you put him on, then you are a living and acceptable sacrifice to God. So chapter 12, verse 1 and 13, uh, verse 14 serve as bookends to these two chapters of Romans. Now, there are probably many other ways you can slice and dice these chapters of Romans, but this is at least one way to look at it. So here's what Paul's doing then to get there. How how does he get from the one end to the other? Well, he discusses, in leading up to chapter 12, he has discussed um, the Lord's plan for the people of Israel, including the salvation that is offered to the Gentiles through the disobedience of Israel. And he calls then on Christians, like we just read, to present themselves as living sacrifices to God, particularly noting in verse 2, chapter 12, verse 2, that they should be different from the world. They should appear different than the world around them. And he explains what this looks like then in, uh, going on in chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, with regard to spiritual gifts. Christians are to be equipped with spiritual gifts, and he talks about what that looks like in, in, that, in those verses. And then he goes on and he gives a number of examples of other ways that Christians um, walk in their, in their Christian life. Other ways that Christians conduct themselves. What Christian love, or, uh, what Christian love looks like in verses 9 through 21, this long section at the end of chapter 12. And in, in this he includes the duty of a Christian not to take personal revenge. Not to take vengeance in their own hands because the Lord says vengeance is mine. So we're not supposed to take vengeance ourselves. That's part of how we live as Christians, walking in love. This is what Christian love looks like. And this leads him then to the beginning of chapter 13 to remind Christians that enacting just punishment is the duty of the civil magistrate. That is the duty of the civil magistrate. And and therefore, um, Christians should should subject themselves to those authorities and not be known as scofflaws. And Christians, uh, individuals, are not supposed to wield uh, the, the authority of vengeance and seek out justice on our own. Rather, we're su- to, supposed to submit ourselves, to subject ourselves to the governing authorities because they have been delegated that authority of enacting justice by God himself. And then, going on in chapter 13, Paul reminds these Christians that love of neighbor is the only thing they should owe anyone. Christians ought to seek as best as they can to be a debt-free people, free from owing things to one another. You, you, shouldn't hold, have, you shouldn't subject yourselves to a debt to another Christian. Christians shouldn't hold debts over the head of fellow Christians. We're, we're not supposed to owe one another things except for love. Love is a debt that you will not, you will not fulfill paying until we go to be with the Lord. 
until that love is perfected. The debt that Christians owe one another is their love for one another. And this is the fulfillment of the law. So finally, having said all of that, Paul exhorts these Christians, given this call to love, given this call to love, given this call to walk in certain ways as Christians, he calls on them to remember their salvation in Christ. Why are you supposed to do all these things? Why does this matter? Because you're supposed to remember your salvation in Christ and to look forward to the perfection of that salvation. You do this by putting on Christ and thus presenting yourself as a living and perfect sacrifice. Okay, so he begins Romans chapter 12 saying, present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. How do we do that? Here's the way that you walk as Christians in a variety of different scenarios. And then the end of chapter 13, here's, here's how you accomplish all this. You put on Christ. You put on Christ. Okay, so given all of that, a little bit of textual context there, let's look now at particularly this end of chapter 13, starting in verse 11. Paul says, knowing the time that it is high time to wake to awake out of sleep. I take the time here that he's referring to to be the fact of and by of there and by extension our salvation. What time is it, Christian? Well, it's it's the time of your salvation. You've been saved. God has given you a new heart. You have been saved in Christ. And this matters because if it is time, if the time is the daytime in your life, if the time is the time of your salvation, you've been justified by the Father, then why are you sleeping? If it is daytime, why are you sleeping? This is what Paul is getting at. It's high time to awake out of sleep. Because now our salvation, and, and here he's talking not just about the um, the initial moment of your salvation, but also the fulfillment of that salvation when we go to be with the Lord. The fulfillment of that salvation, the completion of that salvation. God has begun a work in you. You really are saved if you're in Christ. You really are regenerate. You really are in Him. But that in Him, that salvation is not yet completely fulfilled. We know that because we still sin. There's still work to be done in our hearts. And so we look ahead to the completion of that salvation in the end. So when Paul says, knowing the time, that it is high time to awake out of our sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, we're supposed to wake up, supposed to remember, I'm saved in Christ. And I'm going to look ahead to the completion of that salvation, and, and that's what's going to keep me from falling back asleep. Christians have been saved, they've been justified by Jesus, and simultaneously, they look forward to what Peter says in, in one of his epistles. He calls it the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter's talking particularly about Christians walking through trials and the testing of their faith. In the middle of those trials, in the middle of the testing of your faith, what are you to do? You're to look ahead to the end of your faith, the goal of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Again, not that you are not saved now. But, the, but, but, that, but that that salvation has a completion to come. It has a fulfillment ahead of you. Now, it is very easy for Christians, for all of you in this room, for all of you watching this service, it is very easy, once you have been saved, to keep falling back into sins. 
Well, if I'm saved, if God has given me a new heart, we, we were singing earlier, create in me a clean heart, O God. Well, if God has created a clean heart in you, why do you keep sinning? Why do you keep returning? Not only why do you keep sinning, why do you keep returning to the same sins? It's not like I sin here and I figure that out and then I move on. No, often I sin here and I think, okay, I got that figured out, I'm going to move on, and then the very next moment I'm back in that. Why in the world is this? Why is this our life? Well, it's because that salvation is not yet complete. This is the, the road of sanctification that God has us walking down. But the fact that we keep falling back into sins tells us something, and this is what Paul is getting at here. You were dead in your sins, you've been given new life, but now you're sleeping. You're acting like a dead person again. Christian, you need to stop acting like you're dead and you need to wake up. It's daytime. You need to wake up. You need to turn away from that sleep. You need to turn away from that which looks like death. And you need to wake up. If our baptism is, in one sense, one way to look at this, is like putting on a jersey, sometimes we act like we're on the other team. Right? Sometimes I put on the jersey of being a Christian, not sometimes, when you're baptized, you do put that jersey on. That's God's mark on you. If you're baptized in Christ, that says, I'm a Christian. Okay? If you're a Christian, if I'm, if I'm on a football team and I'm wearing a blue jersey, but then I start running plays for the red team, that's a problem. Well, as Christians, if you're baptized, you're wearing Christ's jersey. You're in Christ. But sometimes we act like we're on the other team. Right? Sometimes we know that it's daytime, but we sleep. We know that we're alive, but we act like we're dead. Why is this? And more importantly, what do we do about it? Paul exhorts these Christians that he writes to so that they would know, so that they would acknowledge and remember that the day has come. The day of your salvation has come. You have been saved in Christ. So now they must, they can and they must walk in the light because the light of the world has come. The light of the world has come both in a cosmic sense. Jesus has come. We know how to come before the Father. We have access to him now because it's light, because Jesus is the light. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way we can come before the Father. But it's also true in a personal sense. It's true in this cosmic sense, but it's also true personally. Jesus has come. And not only that, Jesus has come for you, Christian. He's come for you. And he has given you new life. And so, Paul says, the word says, awake from slumber. Awake out of your slumber. The day has come, so don't pretend it's dark. This is why he says in verse 12, Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. You see this often in the New Testament. You see this imagery of taking off and putting on. We take off the old man, we take off the works of darkness, and we put on the new man. We put on Christ. We put on the armor of light. If we practice evil, this is what Jesus says in John chapter 3. If we practice evil, we end up hating the light because... Well, of course, the light exposes us. If I practice evil, if I practice sin in my 
my actions, in my words, in my thoughts, in my heart, the light is very uncomfortable, to put it lightly. Coming before the Lord in prayer, coming before the Lord in His Word, coming before the Lord in praises and singing is very uncomfortable. It's very awkward. And it's because I'm practicing evil and when I come into the presence of the light, I see that. And I don't want to see that. I want to hide it. I want it to be dark. I want it to stay dark. I don't want my family, my friends, and especially don't want my Lord to see this. I want it to stay dark. If we practice evil, we hate the light because light exposes our sin. There is a reason that much wickedness takes place in the dark. There is a reason that fathers tell their children nothing good happens after 10 o'clock. There's a reason for these things. Sin, evil, wickedness tend toward the dark. The fact, though, is that God is light. That's what John says in 1 John chapter 1. God is light. And we cannot be in Him, we cannot be in the light, and carry on in our sin. You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. You can't be in the light and carry on in your sin. John says, we must not pretend to have fellowship with him if we walk in our sins. Go ahead and look at that with me. 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter 1 verse 6. Now I'll read verses 5 and 6. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. Here it is. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, so if I claim that I'm in fellowship with God, that I'm walking with God, that I'm walking in the light, but we actually walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And God has hard words in his word for liars. we say that we have fellowship with God, if we claim to have fellowship with Him, and yet we walk in darkness, we practice our sins, we have a way of living that is dark, that is sinful, and we're not turning from those things. We lie and we do not practice the truth. You're claiming something you don't have. You're claiming fellowship with God, but you don't have it. Now, this doesn't mean that just because I sin, that therefore I am completely out of fellowship with God. I have no hope of my salvation. But it does mean that you're not in fellowship with God. You don't have the joy of your salvation. And it does mean that you actually don't have assurance in the moment of your salvation. If I am living in sin and walking in sin and refusing to repent of my sin, I have no assurance of my salvation. I might actually be saved, right? This, we, salvation is objective. It's something that God gives to someone and he promises to see it to the end. But if I'm living in my sin, if I'm walking in my sin, I don't actually have any assurance that I've received that gift. 
until, until I repent of that sin. That repentance is assurance. Only a new heart can cry out to God for forgiveness. But if I refuse to do that, if I continue walking in my sin, I have no assurance. I don't know for sure. And this is why John says we must not pretend to have fellowship with God if we are walking in our sins. There is something wrong with us if we slumber. There's something wrong with us if we're returning to our sin in the light. You're, you're like that person sleeping in the middle of the day. You're either lazy or you're sick. There's something wrong with you if you're slumbering in the light. And so because of this, Paul then says in verse 13, let us walk properly. That is in a way that is fitting with the day, with your salvation. Paul's not talking about walk with good manners. He's talking about walking in a way that is fitting with the fact that you've been saved. A way that is fitting with your salvation. And so Paul highlights three types of sins to cast off. He says, walk properly uh, as in the day. So as if you've been saved, actually act like it. And not in, and then he has three different types of sins here, and he gives two names to each type. He says, uh, revelry and drunkenness. These are sins of excess. Sins of lack of self-control. Sins of, really, idolatry, of turning to other things to fill your life to fill your belly, to fill your thoughts apart from the Lord, seeking them in excess, and it's selfish. Secondly, sins such as lewdness or licentiousness and lust. These are sins of sexual immorality, sins of sexual looseness. And again, it carries with it this sense of idolatry. You're serving yourself. And thirdly, Paul says, walk not in strife and in envy. These are sins of selfish ambition, sins of contention, bitterness, and discontentment. All of them are self-centered. All of these sins are self-centered. And and look at that verse, verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the light, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, and compare that to verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul's saying, walk in the light, walk in the daytime, act like you're saved. Act like a saved people. Love one another and don't walk in darkness. Don't walk in these sins of excess and sexual immorality and selfish ambition. Those are the things you're to cast off because they're contrary to Christian love. They're contrary to Christian love. Both the love that God has for us, right? If God loves us so much that he would save us, and yet we walk in these selfish sins, we're we're not, uh, these things are contrary to the love that God has for us. If God has this kind of love for us to save me, and I continue to walk in my sins, I'm acting contrary to his love for me. But it's also contrary to the love that you are to have for others. Your sin is always selfish. Your sin is always self-centered. And it's contrary to love. So therefore, Paul says, cast them off. Cast off these works of darkness. Well, how do we do this? 
How do I cast off these things? Especially these things that we tend to give ourselves to for a long period of time, and, and it's a hard habit to kick. Any of a number of those things that Paul mentions. These are hard things to get rid of from our hearts, from our minds, from our bodies, from our lives. How do I get rid of them? Lord, show us how to do this. Well, it is not enough to only stop sinning. And here's why. Because to stop doing one thing creates a vacuum. You've heard nature abhors a vacuum. If there's empty space, nature fills it. Well, sin and the devil and your flesh also. Well, actually, they don't hate a vacuum. They love a vacuum. They delight in a vacuum. They love it when you've turned away from sin. And that's all you've done. You've only turned halfway. You've only turned away from it because now there's a draw to come back to it. And we experience that in our lives all the time. I'm I'm committed to stopping this thing. I'm not going to do that again. I turn away from it, bam, I'm back in it. Why is that? Well, part of the reason is because all we're doing is turning away from the sin. But what does Paul say? He says, back up in verse 12, Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. It's not enough to turn away from the one if we don't also turn to the other. We have to turn away from sin and turn to Christ. We have to turn all the way around. This is what repentance looks like. And so we cast off the works of darkness and armor up. Gear up, Christian, for the battle against your flesh. It's daytime. Suit up. We gear up for this battle against our flesh. As Paul says in Galatians 5, that the spirit and the flesh war against one another. And you can look at those lists he has there. He has the fruit of the spirit, which you probably know. But he also has the works of the flesh listed there. And those things are pitted against one another because the flesh and the spirit war with one another. We cast off the works of darkness. We gear up for this battle against our flesh, against our remaining sin, by putting on Christ. And we do this so that we may stand against our desires, our selfish desires, our sinful desires, and against the devil himself. Paul says in Ephesians, when he talks about put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to stand. To stand fast and not fall. My kids and I have been enjoying um, watching and talking about and reading some of Pilgrim's Progress recently. And Christian puts on his armor. And he goes in the, in the Valley of Humiliation, he faces Apollyon. And clothed in that armor, he is enabled to stand. And he's wounded over and over again. And he's weakened, but he stands. Because he's armored up. He's put on the armor of God. James says in James chapter 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Have you ever thought why in the world that is? Why in the world does the devil, who's far older, far greater, far stronger than any number one, any, any single one of us, or any number of us put together on our own, why in the world would the devil flee from you? Aren't you a sinner? Don't you owe him something? Well, if you put on the armor of light, what does the darkness do when it encounters light? It flees. 
You wake up in the morning, you turn on the light switch. Where does the darkness go? It's gone. When you put on the armor of light and you resist the devil, he will flee from you. And you have been given power far greater than any that he has. So, put on the armor of light. Put on Christ. What are you preparing yourself for? This leads right into the last verse here. Verse 14. Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put it on. Because you need to cast off the works of darkness. Because you need to stand against the devil. You need to stand against your own flesh. The desires of your sinful heart. One thing we should mention here. Flesh, when Paul talks about flesh, he's not talking about our physical desires alone. He's not just talking about the fact that you're hungry. Or the fact that you're thirsty. Or the fact that you have certain things you want or want to do. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the sinful desires of your heart. That's what the flesh is in Paul's terminology. You're battling against those sinful desires that remain in you. And so, either, I'll answer this question, what are you preparing yourself for? There's only two options. You are always either putting on Christ, putting on that armor of light, walking in the light, or you are, as Paul says, making provision for the sins of your flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. We're going to talk about that a little bit more, but one thing I want to think about is, what, is the, what does this word provision mean? We talk about provisions. Um, if you're going on a trip, or you're going on a hiking expedition, or any of a number of things, you want to. I don't think we use this term ourselves in common much more, but I think we all understand what the term means, right? I'm going to set aside some provisions for my journey, or I'm going to set aside some provisions for hard times, or those kinds of things. But, but why do we use that term provision? Okay, break that word apart. It means it's pro and vision. It implies looking ahead. Why do you take along granola bars on your hiking trip? Because I'm looking ahead to when I get to the summit, I'm going to be hungry. Right? I'm setting aside, I'm looking ahead, I'm planning for being hungry. Paul says, make no provision for your flesh. Now, Paul wouldn't say that unless you do that, unless you're tempted to do that. How often do we talk about our sin as though, uh, you know, especially when we're repenting of it or confessing it or apologizing to somebody, I'm sorry, I, I fell into that again. That's not the way that Paul talks about this. Paul talks about it more like, you know, you plan for that. You intended that. You leapt into that. I think in our lives there is much less falling into sin than there is choosing to sin. Choosing to be unkind. Choosing those harsh words. And this is because Paul's saying, make no provision for the flesh. Don't plan ahead to sin. Okay, that should be obvious, right? Don't plan to sin. And yet, we do that. 
And how foolish is that? Would you, if you're in battle against an enemy, let's say you're a, you're a city and you're under siege and the, the enemy is around you, you're completely cut off. Are, are you going to send out a section of your provisions and give them to the enemy? Only if you're a fool. Right? You're not going to give up your provisions and supply the enemy with more energy, opportunity, and give him, the, give him success in this. You're supposed to be fighting. You're supposed to be resisting. You wouldn't break down your wall and allow your enemy to come and stand in the middle of the wall. <coughs> that would give him a foothold. You're making provision for him. You're planning for him in that way. But Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. So do you, all of you that are sitting here and, and all of you that are watching the live stream, do you set aside time for your sin? Do you plan for it? Do you anticipate it? Those pet sins, those things that you love. Do you give space in your life and in your heart for those sins that come so naturally? Here's one practical application that I think is important in our um, modern day. This is one of the great dangers of personality tests. Things like the Enneagram and, and stuff like that. It, it allows you, the, the great temptation is to say, here's the type of person I am. And therefore, it's really not a big, I, big problem if I struggle with these things. It's just who I am. That's making provision for your flesh. It's an excuse. It's wicked. And it needs to stop. That's not to say there can be nothing good that comes from those things. But the, the greatest thing that a personality test should be could, can give you is the ability to know how to stand against your flesh. I'm this type of person, so now I know when I need to put my armor on. And never should it be used as an excuse for you to say, well, that's just who I am. These are my struggles because that's just, that's just my personality. Those are my letters. I don't know what to do. No, that's making provision for your flesh. Do you make provision for your sins by simply not taking them seriously? Shrug it off, it's no big deal. Or do you make provision for your flesh by, you, you hate that flesh, but you only turn away from it. You don't actually turn to Christ. Again, that's making provision for your flesh, that's giving the enemy a foothold. You think you're turning away from it, but it's really just giving him more fodder. Are you walking in the light or are you slumbering? Are you walking in the light or are you acting like it's dark? Are you, are you saying you're, you want to be a dead man? You've been made alive in Christ. Walk in the light. So what are the ways that you are doing this? I want to give, give some practical uh, application for this, but I want to get a little bit more practical. I'm going to highlight some different demographics here. Fathers and husbands especially given our, our current situation, the coronavirus and the lockdown, staying at home, working from home, are you giving way, are you making provision in your flesh to wrath and anger and impatience as you work from home? I think for many dads, for many fathers, for many husbands, that's one of the greatest temptations in front of you right now. Wrath, anger, and impatience as you are working from home. Are you giving, making provision to your flesh for provoking your children? Which Paul warns strictly against. 
Are you demanding things of your wife and not dwelling with her in, with understanding? Peter says, if you don't dwell with her with understanding, God's not going to hear your prayers. So forget praying about the lockdown to end. Forget praying about going back to work. Forget praying about getting that job back. If you're not dwelling with your wife with understanding, God's not going to hear those prayers. I didn't say it. Peter said it. Mothers and wives, do you make provision in your flesh? Do you give way to annoyance with your husband? To annoyance with your children? To impatience with the constant needs in your home? Do you give way to complaining to your friends or to your mother about these things? Do you refuse to submit to your husband? Do you complain that you have to wait in line so long at Costco? Are you making provision for that in your flesh? Or on the way to Costco, are you saying, I'm going to put on my armor. I'm going to put on my armor of light. I'm going to clothe myself in thankfulness that I get to still go to Costco. That I have a family to feed. Or are you making provision for your flesh and not doing those things and instead standing in line and, and just joining in with the complaint and the dour looks? To any who are single or stuck at home or infirm or elderly, are you giving in, making provision in your flesh to loneliness and to feeling sorry for yourself? I think that is a great temptation for those that are more naturally by themselves in this time. And it is hard, but don't make provision for your flesh. Instead, seek out others who themselves might be lonely. Seek out others that you normally wouldn't seek out. Call them, write to them, and remember that the Lord loves you and that Christ indeed is always with you. Don't make provision for your flesh. Put on your armor. Young children, kids, are you giving in? Are you making provision for your flesh? Are you enabling yourself to complain that you can't go see your friends? To complain about the things you have to do at home? Are you setting things up? Are you organizing things so that you can provoke your siblings? Are you giving in to your flesh? Are you making provision for that? Are you planning on being unkind? Older children, see above. And also, are you caught in some sin? And are you making provision for your flesh by hiding it from your parents? Are you caught in some sin? You can't get out of it. You're stuck. You don't like it. But I don't know what to do about it and you're hiding it from your parents, you are making provision for your flesh. You're allowing your flesh to continue to win in the war for your soul. Don't make provision for that. All of you, are you giving in to these sinful excesses that Paul talks about? Drunkenness, laziness, Netflix binge-watching. Is Netflix a sinful excess? It absolutely can be. Are you giving yourself, are you making provision for your flesh in sexual immorality, pornography, fantasizing, perhaps even selfishly denying the marriage bed to your spouse? 
Are you making provision for your flesh with selfish ambition, with envy, jealousy of what others have and what their situations might be, bitterness and strife at home? Are you making provision for those things or are you clothing yourselves in the armor of light? You are always, always either putting on that armor, putting on Christ and standing against those sinful desires, standing against the devil, or you are making provision for these things. There's really not a neutral ground here. You're either standing steadfast, clothed in Christ, or you're letting the enemy walk in. Are you guilty of these things? Are you guilty of making provision for your sin? Making provision for your sin is yet another sin. Are you guilty of these things? Do you see your sin? Is the light shining as you come before the Lord, as you come before His Word? Do you see it? Is it uncomfortable? Then hear what the Lord says. If he bought you, if he purchased you with his blood, then you are his. You really are his. And you owe nothing to the devil. You owe nothing to your sin. You owe nothing to the accuser. He bought you. Don't set aside supplies then for the enemy. If you're guilty of these things, simply turn. Cry out to God. John says, if we confess our sins, if we confess them, all we have to do is acknowledge them. Acknowledge that they are sinful before God. And He will forgive you. Because he is faithful and he is just. He's faithful. He purchased you. He's not going to leave you there. He's faithful and just to forgive you. Don't give the enemy a foothold. Wake up. Cease from slumbering. Wake up, Christian. Do this by turning to the Lord who saves. There's no sin that you're in. There's no sin that ensnares you that is stronger than your Lord Jesus. There's no sin that is stronger than you if you are in Christ. It has no power over you. In Romans 6, which we read earlier, Paul says, reckon yourselves alive to Christ. You're no longer a slave to sin. It doesn't own you. Don't act like it. Put on Christ. Why is this the answer? Why is this the answer to how we deal with this? How do we get rid of this? Just put on Christ? Why is this the answer? Here's here's the reason. Because apart from Him, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Apart from Him, you are slaves to your sin. But by putting on Christ, you remember the gift of your salvation. You remember the promise and the hope that it has for you. And so you can give God great thanks in the midst of all of it. And you can turn to Him in repentance be clean. The light's shining in your heart. Are you ready to let God clean it? 
Are you ready to turn to Him and Him clean you and set things right? Don't be ashamed in front of Him because He bore the shame for that sin. Just turn to Him in repentance and cry out to Him. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in His light. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are and we know that we are guilty sinners. And Father, I pray for any here that do not know You, that they would see that they too are guilty sinners, and they need a Savior. But Father, we know You, and we claim the righteousness of Christ. Thank You for the gift of our salvation, the promise that You will see it to its completion. We ask, Lord, that you would clothe us and teach us to to ourselves pick up and put on the armor of light. Teach us to make no provision for our flesh, but instead to put on Christ. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. And amen.